0: Well, today we're going to be talking about um, racism and sexism, and how not just our society as a whole, but also our most intimate personal lives are trapped by both of those scourges. So it's fun day. It's gonna be good. You're glad you're here already, I'm sure. For that uplifting, uh, that uplifting thing. And I have to say, I always, I always uh, sort of start when I'm talking about isms. By just admitting that it makes me nervous still, you know it 's hard to talk about um, to talk about these things that divide us from each other and to always worry that we 're going to use just the wrong word and that it 'll hit someone in just the wrong way and so i 'll just assume that something will hit someone in the wrong way, and that you 'll tell me about it later, okay. <laughs> How about that? It'll make me feel better. And hopefully you too. And I do hope you tell me about it later. You will. What am I talking about? Of course you'll tell me about it later. I want to start, I think in some ways, you know, I was trying to originally pull these two ideas, sexism and racism, some of the two big isms, although there are so many that we that we talk about. I was trying to pull them together, and ultimately, they were really two pieces for me. So we're going to talk about sexism first, and what sexism looks like in our personal lives. We like to think, I think, especially in sort of progressive circles, that, we, um, that we're done with sexism, you know, that we... Um, we figure that out. Other people, obviously, might have problems with it, um, but not us. Um, and, of course, that's not true. It's not at all true in society at large that um, that sexism doesn't exist anymore somehow, that we have moved behind beyond it. And I would argue that it's really not even true in our own kind of um, what we imagine to be our rarefied progressive air. Just to have a couple of instances of the way that sexism still lives out and plays out in society, Oh, good, there's tissues here. Um, In 2012, a report came out. You probably saw it. There's been legislation proposed around it. Um, But uh, women still make about 77 cents on the dollar uh, compared to men. Now, I know that girls are not supposed to be good at math, but I feel pretty confident in saying that that's not the same. And then you might have heard recently about the the Bechdel test. Has anyone been hearing about this? It's been coming up with um, all of the award ceremonies um, for movies. So the Bechdel test comes from Alison Bechdel um, actually in 1985 um, uh, in a cartoon uh, that she wrote, Dykes to Watch Watch Out For. And um, the test is for movies. It can be applied to novels, anything, but we do it often with movies. And so the test, if you pass the Bechdel test... In the movie, there are at least two women characters, that's number one, you have to fill all three of these, so, two women characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. (laughs) There were nine films nominated for um, Best Picture in the Oscars this year, five of those films fail the Bechdel test. Now, people have said you can give gravity a pass because there's only two characters and one's a man and one's a woman. But even so, at best, we are half and half. There was uh, some press this year um, because some of the movies that passed the Bechdel test and um, Catching Fire, the new Hunger Games movie, is one of them that's been really kind of lauded for um, having strong female characters and all of that. Um, Some of the movies that passed the Bechdel test were actually the highest grossing movies, which is exciting and quite a change. Um... Uh, in this past year, but as Katie Waldman wrote in Slate, uh, in 2014, we are still whooping with delight when movie studios depict a woman sharing a snippet of non-dude-focused conversation with another woman. The bar, she points out, is pretty low. And don't even get me started on bossy women, the sexualizing of the female form, and the work to move back birth control access. Seriously, people, birth control? It's 2014. One little thing. I said don't get me started, but just it's just this little tiny thing. It just drove me crazy. This is the part of the platform that got a little ranty, so... <clears throat> you know the... Um, the the uh, you know the um the song very popular, Carly Ray Jepsen's Call Me Maybe. You may um have heard that song and there were many parodies of it. Call Me Maybe, there's a video. One parody was done, I think, by the Miami Dolphins. It was a cheerleading team and so it was women doing um wasn't really a parody of the song so much. Actually, the the original song was a lot funnier. But, um, but it was women in um, eh, not much clothes um, dancing and calling me maybe and doing a whole thing. And and um, and then there was a response to that video, which was done by um, all male soldiers uh, serving in Afghanistan. And uh, it was really cute. Actually, they spent a lot of time on it. Um, and, uh, and and and. It was a message back to the Miami Dolphin cheerleaders, I think, from those men. But the thing that really stood out for me was I, I, I was watching a, um, a side-by-side. You could watch the two videos together on YouTube right next to each other. And, um, and what was remarkable was to me was that watching these men, also relatively scantily clad, uh, dancing along, to call me maybe was so strange. I mean, it looked really weird. It was sort of uncomfortable to watch them. And I didn't feel at all that way about the Miami Dolphins cheerleaders. And I realized it's because I am so used to seeing the female body sexualized as a consumer product. It was, it was remarkable to me the difference in my experience of the two videos. So that, okay, we're done with the little... Sexualization, sexualization of the female form. Rant, but it's a problem, and somebody should fix that. Um, so, so, we work against these things. We certainly rant against these things. You know, we post and sign and sign things. I, I remember marching for the uh, ERA, um, the Equal Rights Amendment, <clears throat> many years ago. We march still for amendments like that. It, and so what I've been thinking about is the way that we do all of that, I do all of that kind of out in society and, and and work for justice and equality. And then look at my own life. And that's really where this platform is trying to go. Sort of what that work for equality out in the world looks like in the lived reality of my own life. And so my own life, I want to just name my experience. I'm a cisgender woman married to a man with two kids. We have a picket fence. I think it, maybe it's split rail. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's a fence. It's white, and um, and uh, he mows the lawn, and um, and pays the bills actually, and um, and I bake. <laughs> and that's okay because I like to bake, and you know I don't know if he likes to pay the bills, but um, but the thing that's um, the thing that's harder for me, as I think about sort of the way that equality plays out in my own life, the thing that's harder is um, is something that I think many... Uh, mothers of young children experience. It's the concept that even in a relationship where we have actually really relatively equal time with the children and time supervising and parenting the children um, and a, really a division of household chores that feels comfortable and appropriate to the two of us, even within that, I hold on to the concept of being the mama in charge with a daddy I delegate to. I don't know if that feels familiar to anyone else. Maybe it's just me. But the thing is that the media and popular culture tells us that that's what male-female relationships look like. You know, that, that men can do lots of things now, and we're so glad, and good job, everybody. But <laughs> it's women who really know how to run the home and take care of the children. And so when the, when the men do it, it's because they've been handed a task to complete. And, and that, as well as so many other gender roles and gender stereotypes that play out in our most intimate personal lives, they are insidious and seductive. You know, we own them ourselves as we swap war stories with our friends. Gosh, I just can't stand the way he does the dishwasher, but, you know, I guess we will never learn. Even the concept, I think, so often talked about of work-life balance, which just as an aside to mention one other little tiny-ism, because you just can't avoid it, is actually a pretty classist concept. The idea of work-life balance and sort of having it all and how you balance all of these things. you know I have the privilege and the luxury to think about how to balance my work and my life. Many people do not have that privilege and luxury. They work the amount that they need to work to get food on the table, and the rest of it comes in as it can. But that concept, as well as being classist, is also sexist. I can tell you no one has ever asked my husband how he manages his full-time job and parenthood and how much they admire him for it. Now, I'm happy to have the admiration as long as it's for every parent of a young child And that kind of sexism hurts fathers, too, I think. Stay-at-home fathers tend to be devalued, isolated, and ridiculed still in our society. And people like my husband, who indeed does have to manage co-parenting and a full-time job just the way I do, isn't really noticed for doing that. People don't recognize that he's doing it just the same way I'm doing it. And then what about housework? When I counsel different sex couples before they're, uh, as they're getting ready to get married, I sometimes tell them that even if they've been living together for a while and they feel like they've figured out the housework thing really well and everyone's comfortable with it, they should be on guard for the possibility that when they, when they get married, suddenly that title of wife or husband makes them think that there should be more pot roasts, you know that something is supposed to shift. Emily Oster wrote in Slate about how to divide up housework in her family. She writes, after we had a kid, we had more to do and less time to do it in. She originally was doing all of the cooking and the cleaning, and she didn't mind. So after we had a kid, we had more to do and less time to do it in. It seemed like it was time for some reassignments. But of course, I was still better at doing both things. Did that mean I should do them both? I could have appealed to the principle of fairness. We should each do half. I could have appealed to feminism. Surveys show that women more often than not get the short end of the chore stick. Women do about 44 minutes more housework than men in time use data, she goes on. I could have simply smashed around the pans in the dishwasher while sighing loudly in the hopes he would notice and offer to do it himself. This next line is my favorite that I read in research for this platform. But luckily for me and my husband, I'm an economist, so I have more effective tools than passive aggression. (laughs) (laughs) Is anything more effective than sighing loudly while you do the dishwasher, though? I don't know. So um, Emily Oster goes on to have sort of a complicated formula to determine uh, who has a minor advantage in which skills versus who has a comparative advantage, um, where you're like you're a little bit better at lawn care, but you're really a lot better at cooking, and there's a whole thing about Sweden and Finland and reindeer hats and who has a comparative advantage. And then she has some comments about efficiency and high-functioning workers being reduced after a lack of sleep, so you can't have one person, the best person, do everything. Anyway, she ends up with about a three-fifths, two-fifths split in her family of chores, and I appreciated her economic understanding and the way she applied that to housework in her family, but I struggled with the basic assumption. She started out by saying, often one person is better at everything, and let's be honest, often that person is the woman. (laughs) I mean, seriously, do we think that men are not capable of doing household chores effectively? Doesn't that seem a little odd? (laughs) I think Abby will probably have a conversation with you about that afterward. Lo and behold, in this particular couple, the author found that her husband actually turned out to be good at using the dishwasher when he had to do so with regularity. So what does all of this do to us, this sort of the stories that we take on about housework and gender roles and assumptions in a, in a different sex relationship? Erin Carmen wrote for Jezebel, talking about, um, about sort of what it, what it looks like. She writes, your biological adaptation to stress looks healthier when your partner has to suffer the consequences. So she actually found, in a, there was a study done that showed that um, that when women were doing more chores, there was a higher spike for men, a a reduction in stress levels. Men felt better when women were doing more chores. It wasn't the opposite. Um, Right. And indeed, in these couples, that's exactly what happened, these couples that were studied. When the researchers monitored the homes of the couples, the women spent 30% of their after-work time doing housework, 18.5% in communication, so talking, and had about 10% devoted to leisure time. Men spent around the same amount of time communicating, but since they spent only 20%, that was instead of 30, of their time doing housework, they had 19% instead of 10% to spend on leisure. The good news is, according to a separate study, she goes on, at the current rate of household labor being shared between men and women, and it has been changing over the last few decades, heterosexual couples will reach parity in 2050. <laughs> Put it on your calendars. That's how she ends the article. So, so why do we allow this? You know, why... Why do I allow it? Why do I tell myself a story about being the mama in charge with the delegated daddy? Or, um, or that there are certain things that I just do better that my husband couldn't possibly understand? There's a theory out there, and it feels really right to me, that in different sex couples, gendered roles continue to be seen as romantic in some way, right? That it's part of the romance to fall into those gendered roles. Ellen Lamont from New York University wrote, while the women in a study about housework where there was not parody um, reference essentialist beliefs about men's nature, I guess their nature being that they can't unload the dishwasher appropriately despite being competent human beings, Uh, While the women reference essentialist beliefs about men's nature to explain their commitment to courtship conventions, they draw on narratives of choice, individualism, and personal autonomy uh, to assert that the symbolic gendering of courtship, she's talking about the time leading up, will not interfere with their desire for an egalitarian marriage. So you can see the ways that sort of the, the idea that gendered roles are more romantic during the courtship period. And then, and then sort of not making the leap that if that's where you start, getting to an egalitarian marriage might be a little bit tricky. So how do we fix that? Well, I think one of the things that's actually been really helpful for me personally and perhaps for others um, is looking at same-sex couples and how they... Deal with all of this. There was an article in the Atlantic about a year ago, written by Liza Mundy. It actually featured my colleague Rob Hardy's down at All Souls and his partner and their um, and their son. About um, it was basically about how same sex couples do marriage better. Um, and. Uh, and, but it was great. It was, it, it was great. He, Liza wrote, by providing a new model of how two people can live together equitably, same sex marriage could help haul matrimony more fully into the 21st century. Same sex spouses who cannot divide their labor based on pre existing gender norms must approach marriage differently than their heterosexual peers. From sex to fighting, from child rearing to chores, they must hammer out every last detail of domestic life without falling back on assumptions about who will do what. In this regard, they provide an example that can be enlightening to all couples. Critics warn, Liza goes on, of an institution rendered genderless. That's one of the criticisms of same-sex marriage or of marriage equality, that it makes marriage genderless. (laughs) But... If a genderless marriage is a marriage in which the wife is not automatically expected to be responsible for school forms and child care and dinner preparation and birthday parties and midnight feedings and holiday shopping, I think it's fair to say that many heterosexual women would cry, Bring it on. The whole gendered roles are romantic notion is all tied up in very specific understandings of gender anyway, very specific norms and roles applied to gender, of the different gender as a kind of completion of what the first gender lacks, you know, the sort of yin and yang theory of gender, I think, or or construct of gender. And I say that as someone who, for the most part, fits into a pretty traditional understanding of gender physically and in dress. I am wearing a skirt and heels, I point out. But in other ways, I don't at all. I still meet people who tell me that I'm the first woman minister that they've ever met. Isn't that interesting? And I remember early in our courtship, is Peter here? I sort of forgot to check with him about this story. Oh, well. <laughs> early in our courtship, Peter and I took dance lessons together, and uh, which we loved, and, and thought we thought that it would be good for us because it meant that at least once a week I wasn't taking the lead, you know? He would have the lead. The problem is that I actually did take the lead there, too. (laughs) And you know what? It didn't occur to me until last night when I was writing this up. Well, why not? Whoever decided that women couldn't lead when they were dancing? Probably the same dang people who said they couldn't lead a company. Not, certainly, Lisa and Cindy, the teachers at Two-Step tonight. (laughs) who know that women can lead a dance whenever they'd like to. You know, all of this sort of deconstructing requires me to give up some of what I enjoy about gendered roles. Those of you who are Facebook friends with me, and anyone can be, I'll say yes if you ask me, know that a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we had snow, I posted on Facebook that my husband was out with the shovel, and it was the one time when I really appreciated traditional gender roles in my marriage. So there are things that I like about being the mama in charge, about being the baker and the school-forum person. I like having people, you know, acknowledge me as the school-forum person. And so, and so there's a piece that asks me to give up those parts because I recognize that overall the system is too dangerous for me, for my family, and for my relationship. I might have to get out there and do some snow shoveling. Certainly I have to forget about the idea of mama in charge with delegated daddy, which is particularly ludicrous in our family, where Peter is the primary care provider on Sundays, evenings, and many Saturdays. But I'm so aware of how much resistance I encounter in myself when I work on giving that up, on remembering that the equality that I fight for so hard out there in the world needs to come home with me as well. We are trained into our cultural understandings, and we cling to them pretty darn tight. So here's the shift to the other platform that I couldn't really make into one platform. As we talk about racism... You know, sexism and gender roles feel like something that I can work on, partly because I have a relationship with people of my own and different genders. I have lots of different kinds of models, including same-sex couples who can offer kind of a new way of looking, and people who aren't coupled. I mean, who do you think is dealing with the yard work in the home of a single woman, or doing the dishes in the home of a single man? (laughs) My guess is that they have... Develop skills to be a fully functioning person. (laughs) As far as we have to go, I can see the horizon there. 2050, remember, when housework will be on parity. And I have a sense of how we might be able to get there, both in public policy and also in my own lives and the way that I raise my children. Racism, and especially the separation among people, that racism causes in our personal lives. That feels harder. I am really proud of the work that I have done, but especially the work that this congregation is doing. Many of you have done for decades, deeply engaged in anti-racism training, in conversations about privilege and oppression, in work for justice in dismantling racist systems all around the country and our area. And it was as part of that work last August that I went to the 50th anniversary march on Washington. Many of you came as well, actually. We had a big contingent from West and a big contingent from the American Ethical Union, and we marched or kind of wandered trying to find the right place, and it was so good to be there. It was proud and exciting to be there. And to look around, I brought my older daughter with me so that she could say later that she was there at that particular historic moment, a memory of an earlier historic moment. And I remember looking around at the crowd, which was incredibly diverse, so many different looking folks and different seeming folks, and then noticing that there in that crowd, the diversity was still in little bubbles. There were little groups of white people that had come together to this march to celebrate integration, and little groups of black folks who had come to this march celebrating integration. And it was a moment of such heartbreak for me to see that even a self-selecting crowd people who had made a point to come out and honor this moment in American history. Still, that social integration is so far out of our grasp. Lois Quinn and John Powisaret of the Employment and Training Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee wrote... Much of the United States remains racially segregated with almost a third of the African American population living on blocks that are more than 90% black and over half of the white population living on blocks that are more than 90% white. And then Richard Rothstein of the Economic Policy Institute just a few months ago wrote in the Washington Post, as a society, much as we celebrate the achievements of the civil rights movement 50 years ago, we have abandoned racial integration as a goal and not only maintained segregation, but have taken steps toward resegregating children and communities. But the truth is, That we don't need statistics and talking heads to tell us what we know. That for many of us, certainly not all of us, not all of us in this room, not all of us in this city by any stretch of the imagination, but for many of us, and I claim for me, our social lives, our personal lives remain relatively segregated. The pain of that failure in my own life, for me, is palpable. And I think I'm not the only one that feels it. I reached out on Facebook to to get people's thoughts and heard from a member of Wes, and this is somebody who's in an interracial marriage. So already she has a life that many of us would see as more diverse than our own. She wrote about the pain of her increasingly homogenous world. Our neighborhood, she wrote, is pretty much all white, straight, married, cisgendered, and able-bodied. And we love our neighbors and being able to walk to both playgrounds and the metro. I love both my job and my neighborhood, and I didn't choose them for their lack of diversity, but I really am uneasy with how white and suburban my life has become. My life used to be full of all kinds of people, but it's gradually getting more and more homogenized. The idea of this platform in general came actually out of a conversation with the radical diversity team at West, a group of folks who come together to learn and study about anti-racism and privilege work and anti-oppression work and to offer that and try to find ways to engage the community. And we were talking about exactly that, how to get Folks at West to feel as though this was personal. That it's not just about understanding systems and fighting against racist systems in our country, systems like racial profiling and mass incarceration, but that it's also about making choices in our own lives. In which coworker we try to build a deeper relationship with, which parent we reach out to at the PTA, about how we try to build friendships. Coming up in February on the 16th, we have a platform from a longtime Shepherd Park resident whose whole life has been really about a personal commitment to integration through his work with Neighbors Inc. here in this neighborhood and through many other ways as well. And I hope that you'll attend that and be inspired by it. I think sometimes about, you know, the the Unification Church. What's the, the Moonies, but they're really called the Unification Church, you know? And um, they do these huge mass weddings, uh, which isn't, I mean, there's many things about the Unification Church I don't necessarily suggest Wes adopts, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I guess a mass wedding could be fun. Um, but what's interesting to me is that when they do those mass weddings, did you know that they, um, that they always work to have the relationship be interracial? Because they believe in the universality of humanity and think that one way to do that is to have our most intimate personal relationships cross what we see as racial and ethnic boundaries. There's a West member who was not in a mass wedding with the Unification Church. I don't really have a good transition there, sorry. Anyway, but there's a West member who I know made a promise to herself years ago. This is, I guess this is like a, a, a different version of mass weddings. No, it's not. She made a promise to herself years ago that she wouldn't ever host a party that wasn't integrated. If she couldn't invite folks and have them attend so that the party was integrated, she just wouldn't host it. I wonder what would happen if we carried that commitment in our own lives, if I carried that commitment. As a white person, I really struggle with how to live out, how to make happen my desire to have a more diverse group of friends, to fight against the homogeneity that I experience now, while not being that person who is on the hunt for her friendship collection. Right? Someone um, remembered a scene from the TV show Modern Family where Mitch and Cam, who are a same-sex couple, meet another couple, I think parents of their kid, from from other parents from preschool, uh, who are an interracial couple. And Mitch and Cam are seen whispering to each other, oh, great, we don't know any interracial couples. This is really good, we need them. And then the interracial (laughs) couple is seen whispering to each other, oh, this is great, we don't have enough gay friends. It's really good that we've met them. (laughs) Now, in that instance, it worked out okay. (laughs) But I have a real fear of descending into the kind of racism that's often called exoticism. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept. But it's the idea that, um, and, and it's sort of found especially among progressive white folks, oh, you're of a different race than I am. You're cooler than I am. Your jewelry is more interesting and fabulous. Won't you be my friend so that I can be cooler too? All of that aside, though, there are real deep reasons. Why having more diversity in our personal lives, in our social lives, and in the social fabric of our society is good. Richard Rothstein, who I quoted earlier from the Washington Post, talking about how we've given up on racial integration as a goal, he was, uh, made that comment as part of um, the context was about how s- school integration is important in America, not just because diversity is nice to have and it's nice for our kids to grow up in a diverse setting, but because that kind of school integration has a real documented benefit Within society. He wrote, Integration is necessary for the success of black students, even if they never have the opportunity to command white soldiers or hold jobs in predominantly white enterprises, which is one one reason that integration was first talked about when African American students he writes from impoverished families are concentrated together in racially isolated schools in racially isolated neighborhoods exposed only to other students who also come from low income crime ridden neighborhoods and I want to acknowledge that he 's talking about race he 's also obviously talking about class and poverty so i want to I want to make sure you hear that there are multiple layers to what he 's talking about in this particular instance around school integration um, uh, the obstacles to these student success are most often overwhelming. Social science research for a half century has documented the benefits of racial, and I would add, kind of um, socioeconomic level, but uh, racial integration for black student achievement with no corresponding harm to whites. And those benefits of integration socially matter to me. I was convinced about that years ago when I first read Jonathan Kozol's Savage Inequalities. You might have read that book about... Um, about the segregation of the school system that happened post-integration as cross-busing ended, among other things. But even integrated schools, and we are a long, long way from integrated schools, much longer than we were, actually, about 40 years ago, um, and especially long here in D.C., even integrated schools doesn't mean that our personal friendship circles are integrated. And there, I think there's an even deeper pull that I feel. Tequina Boston, the Unitarian Universalist Association's Director of Multicultural Growth and Witness, talks about multicultural community and why it's important. Multicultural community, she writes, makes it harder to marginalize, exclude, and oppress people who don't share our identities. Multicultural relationships also call us to be more active in seeking justice for all people. In other words, it helps us to find the passion to fight for equality throughout society. It makes it so that we're unable to ignore that call when we are in real, deep, and authentic relationship in a multicultural community. But deeper still, perhaps, there's something about having as much of the world as possible in our own circle of love. Not just our circles of work or justice-seeking, but our circles of love, of care. That's possible only when we get to that real, authentic relationship. And then there's the idea that integrated friendship circles and interracial relationships as well are still uncommon. Really strikingly uncommon, actually. And so for me, there's some sort of logic that follows that, that if those kinds of friendships and relationships and partnerships are uncommon in a society that we know is racist, then they are naturally good and we should have more of them to try to change what the society looks like. I don't know. I am beginning to think that if, it is, if there is a social norm, we ought to break it, and if there's a social taboo, we ought to do it. I think, too, there's just such an element of um, of loss here, of personal experiences of loss. I was at a Washington Interfaith Network meeting earlier this week, and we were talking about young people who come to the city and young people who were born in the city um, young people who come to the city for work after college or for graduate school who are not exclusively by any means, but often kind of majority white, and um, young people who grew up in the city who are multi-generational D.C. residents who are often uh, majority African American. And talking about the interactions of those groups and about transitioning neighborhoods in D.C. and what a neighborhood looks like and what happens when it changes, there was a young white woman talking about living in a transitioning neighborhood. She'd moved here after college and her experience riding the bus with the same person, you know, she rides the bus with the same people every day, they're all going to work at the same time, Um, and assuming that the person on the bus, who she assumes is a a multi-generational D.C. resident, was an older African-American man, that that person on the bus wouldn't want to talk with her, would experience her as an intruder. And so she didn't start a conversation, because she has that assumption and she doesn't want to intrude. What a loss, it seems to me, to both the people on the bus and even more to the fabric of the neighborhood that they live in, when we carry these assumptions so deeply that we are afraid to risk testing them, that we're afraid to risk breaking out of it. There is in us, I think, somehow a yearning for something different, for a different way of being in the world, for a wholeness that only comes when we have all the people together in our circle of love. Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, thought that the religious impulse was motivated by three spiritual pains the pain of insignificance our own insignificance, the pain of watching suffering that we cannot alleviate, and then the pain of a divided conscience. And that last one, that last one speaks to me here. It's the idea that we have a moral standard to which we hold ourselves, and then we sort of have the moral standard that we use to actually interact in the world, in the groups around us, in our workplace, in our personal lives, and that they're not the same. To me, I think that's what it's about at the end as we think about bringing equality home, to look at what I believe in, what I fight for in the arenas of sexism and racism and all of the other isms which intersect so powerfully with each other in this kind of web of privilege and oppression. To know what I believe and then to wish so deeply that my own life looked like the world that I'm fighting to create. To take the belief I hold within myself, my own moral standard, and see it lived out in the world. We have those moments, all of us, when we see for just a minute how the world could look. How it should look. A world where isms fall away and where our deepest identity is one of solidarity or commonality with all of humanity. I want so much for the world to look that way. And until I can have that, I want my own life to look that way. Or as close as I can get to it. So somewhere in there, there's this this yearning, this pain, and also this possibility And it's a risky possibility. It's scary to break out of traditional gender roles. It's scary to think that perhaps our assumptions are wrong or at least to test them. It's scary to cross the boundaries that society has told us exist, that society has told us are real. But I think somehow our deepest call is to teach ourselves that they aren't real after all. To take the risk and extend the invitation and say hello, whatever it is that we need to do so that we can see the boundaries fall away, so that we realize they were never there in the first place. And then, of course, to take that passion and that love and to act out in the world so that the real boundaries, the real systems fall away as well. Forget assumptions, forget old forms, forget what we have been taught or what we think we know. I am so ready to try equality on for size. I am hoping it will fit better.